Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. I got back from a, a men's retreat uh, that I was speaking at the last couple of days, and then we had the Devin and Ashley's wedding yesterday. Big congrats to them. They're not here, but let's see Muhammad anyways. Um, um, and our thing's falling apart. Um, yeah, so I like am without my sport coat. I've got like a scratchy voice, so you guys have like 90s grunge Chris. Uh, preaching to you. But we got a lot of work to jump into, so let me pray, and then we'll dive right in, all right? Uh, Father, thank you so much uh, for your church, for your word. Um, God, we celebrate uh, the fact that Devin and Ashley, uh, the way you brought them together and have called them to be husband and, and wife, and um, just as uh, they got married yesterday ago, Lord, we just uh, pray for safe travels for them on their honeymoon, um, and uh, we're just really thrilled to see, Lord, what you'll do. Uh, in and through their marriage. Um, God, we also are um, just grateful to uh, be here and uh, have the opportunity to, to walk through uh, your word together as a church family. I pray, God, that the, the words of my mouth, the thoughts and meditations in all our heart would be pleasing to you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Um, so is this... Are we okay? That one's that one's retiring. All right, rest in peace. Cool. All right, turn to Second Timothy chapter two. Second Timothy chapter two. Uh, taking a brief break uh, from our Revelation series for this week uh, to talk about one of the best passages I think on Jesus's mission uh, for the church. Second Timothy chapter two. We're going to be looking at the first several verses as Courtney just uh, read. Uh, let me read uh, the first two verses uh, and then we'll start walking through them. It says. Uh, this is Paul speaking. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so what we see here is in this, in this passage, in these verses, you really have a, 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 a truncated version of the master plan of Jesus's mission, right? The master plan of Jesus's mission for the church. Disciples, Making disciples, making disciples. Like, that's what Jesus wants us to be. That's who he wants us to be. That's what he wants us to be doing. He wants those of us who, who uh, associate with him, those of us who follow him, to be disciples and then to, to make disciples. Now, the apostle Paul, he knew the importance of that mission that Jesus gave us. He knew the importance of it. He had it in mind when he began this letter to Timothy. Now, 2 Timothy, for, um, for those of us who might not know, happens to be the, the last letter that we have from the Apostle Paul. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, uh, wrote a number of letters to different churches, 
to different individuals, and for this particular letter that we call 2 Timothy. This happens to be the last letter that we have from him. And when Paul's writing these words, he's actually writing while he's in, in prison at the time. He's about to die. So his, his words are like a especially significant what he's about to say. And the young man that he's writing to, Timothy, is one of his disciples. He's like a spiritual son to Paul. He's a guy who, who had left his family to follow Paul while he went around planting different churches, raising up pastors and, and training men from town to town to town. Uh, Timothy was, I mean, we could call like Paul's right-hand guy, right? One of his disciples. And so, and so Paul, he's, he's writing these words, first of all, from chapter one, we see as, as a good, sort of a goodbye letter, right? He's about to die. It's the last recorded letter we have from him probably the last letter he wrote uh, to Timothy. And so he's first of all writing it as a goodbye letter, but the other thing that he's writing for is, is with his intention to sort of like pass the torch on to Timothy and offer Timothy some helpful advice on how to keep the mission going. I want you to look down at 2 Timothy chapter two and we'll start back again at verse one. Go through it slowly. Paul says, you then, my child, you then, Timothy, be strengthened by, what does it say? The grace that is in Christ Jesus. He says, you then, my child, be, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is of primary importance to Paul. It's the first pro tip he gives Timothy right here. He says, uh, he says right here to, um, why isn't this working? Uh, be strengthened how? By hitting the weights? No, it's not that kind of strength, right? By hitting what? The top, the top leadership books of the day? No, it's not that kind of strength either. Either He says, uh, those, not that those things are bad, by the way. Like, those can be helpful, but that's not what's primary talking about, right? He says his first wish here is for Timothy to be, strengthened by the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ, to be strengthened in the gospel. And so this is the first principle of discipleship. We're gonna look at these as principles of discipleship in this text. The first principle of discipleship is to preach the gospel to yourself repeatedly. And you wanna preach the gospel to yourself repeatedly. This is step number one, because you can't get anywhere useful in your walk, in your journey, whatever you want to call it, you can't get anywhere useful as a disciple without knowing who you are and where you're at. And the thing that tells us who we truly are and where it is that we're truly at is the gospel. It's the gospel. Because the gospel helps us remember that God is great and that, and that we are not, Right? The gospel reminds us that we were rebels without a cause. We were undeserving sinners. But in spite of that, like God, he loved us anyways. He saved us. He pursued us. He elected us in Christ. He sent his spirit to make us new, to make us born again. And when I say preach the gospel to yourself repeatedly, I'm not merely saying like, hey, recite what the Bible says about the gospel. Recite these words to yourself. No, 
what I mean by preach the gospel to yourself is I'm saying, hey, really sit. Like, really sit with the good news. Let the weight of it move you. Man, if, if your heart is no longer melting at the thought of saving grace, if it's no longer moved by God's saving grace, if it's not leading you to repent each new day, man, you gotta really sit with it. You gotta really sit with it. The more you preach the gospel to yourself, what should be happening is that the greater you'll grow in worship and also in, in humility. You'll start, to, you'll start to recognize, see and recognize things about yourself that are, are keeping you from, from loving God and from loving others. The more you'll start to, to see what's keeping you from, from living your life to the glory of God and to the good of others. How many of us have ever done like, like a staff evaluation for, for other people? You ever done like a staff evaluation for someone? Um, if you've ever been part of a staff evaluation, uh, like conducted that, or maybe like you've actually like received one, right? But if you've ever kind of sat in that sort of process, you know that in order to lead well, you have to know the strengths and the weaknesses of the people on your team, right? Like if someone's falling short in a certain area, you need to, you need to know that so that you can know how to encourage them and correct them. And if you're not honest about that, that person is never gonna grow. The team will never grow. You'll never succeed at the mission you've been called to. And then the same, the same is for leading yourself, which in a sense is what discipleship is. The same is true for leading yourself. If you lie to yourself, if you pretend that maybe you're more than you are, or that you're, you're less flawed than you are, then you're not gonna be who you're truly called to be. You won't be the best version of yourself. You'll be, you'll be proud, too puffed up, or you'll be too self-focused. Man, a big part of preaching the gospel to ourselves is, is we gotta be honest about where we're broken. We gotta be honest about our sins. That's, that's why we, we, we have a regular part of our rhythm and liturgy here at King's Cross is this prayer of confession that we do, right? You gotta be honest about, where you're, about your sins and about where you fall short. And, and look, man, I, I, I've had people tell us, like, like, why do you guys do this prayer of confession? Like, it, it's, 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 it's like focusing on the negative, right? Because our, our culture tells us that it's not good to focus on bad things, right? It's not good to focus on flaws. But I think it's worse to hold on to something bad because you're unwilling to face the truth. And you have to be, like, we don't want to be consumed with our flaws and our mistakes, but, like, you have to be brutally honest with yourself in order to truly move past them, in order to truly let the God, the God of grace, like, 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 weed that out of your life. You have to be brutally honest with yourself or you won't move past the sins that are holding you back. You won't move past what's keeping you from an authentic relationship with God and others. In 1 John chapter 1, the apostle John, half-brother of Jesus, he says, he puts it this way. He says, if we, if we say that we have fellowship with, with him, with God, while we walk in darkness, then we lie and do not practice the truth. But 
if we walk in the light as, as he, as God is in the light, then, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what those verses tell us? It tells us that, that, that gospel-centered discipleship means that we don't pretend we're anything more than we are. Anything we might be tempted to keep in the dark, we, we push it into the light. Rather, we, we allow the Holy Spirit to pull it out into the light. We're authentic and honest. And confession, the act of confession begins to mark our lives. It's not something that, like, confession isn't something that you did once when you were converted, and, like, now you get to move on from that, Right? Like, our lives should be marked by confession as Christians. Our lives should be marked by repentance. We, we never move on and graduate from the gospel. There's no freedom for those who refuse to, to just own their own sin. There's no victory over sin if you're not willing to be honest. And so, man, let me, let me just ask and plead with you as, as your friend and as your brother, like, for the sake of... For the sake of your relationships, for the sake of your own holiness, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of your own joy, and for the joy of those who might come to know Christ through your witness. Like, don't, don't try and pretend to be more put together than you are. Rather, be honest and open so that you can strengthen yourself, not by posturing or putting on a veneer, but truly strengthen yourself from the inside out in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's what's wonderful, so wonderful about the gospel. The gospel encourages us to be honest about how broken and flawed we truly are. So it allows us to be honest about that, but it doesn't crush us. No, it doesn't crush us because it also tells us how loved and pursued we are in Christ. And so strengthen yourself in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul continues with verse 2 and he says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust a faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, this verse right there, that's the mission, Right? The mission is to live out the ways of Jesus that we've been taught, live out the ways of Jesus, and then also now to teach others to do the same. That's the, this is the second principle of discipleship, to follow Jesus and the everyday stuff of life and to teach others to do the same. Follow Jesus in the everyday stuff of life and teach others to do the same. Did you know that the word disciple which is what it, what it means to be a follower, right? To, to the word disciple actually occurs 269 times in the New Testament. 269 times. Guess how many times the word Christian appears in the New Testament? Three times. Three times. And whenever the word Christian is, 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 is used, 
it's really used as just another word for a disciple of Jesus. So the primary word in the New Testament for somebody who belongs to Jesus, who associates with Jesus, is a disciple. A disciple. I mean, the great commission that Jesus gave to the early church was to use his power and authority that he's given them to now go and make disciples. And disciple means what? Follower. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, is you are a follower of him. And so to belong to Jesus, you need to be a follower of Jesus in the truest and fullest sense of that word, a follower. That should go without saying, right? I mean, that should go without saying, but, but I think it, it's worth taking a moment to mention that, especially in our day and culture, because a lot of us were taught that, hey, as long as you prayed this prayer and got, and got dunked in the water, then you can, just, you can just sort of spiritually coast the rest of your life, and you're good to go. You're good to go with Jesus. And so you've got a lot of men and women who now, who now call themselves like, yeah, I'm Christian because I, I checked those, I've checked off those marks. And so they walk around calling themselves Christian, but they aren't actually disciples. Because you can't call them followers of Jesus with any integrity. But the Bible says you can't. You can't divorce the one word from the other. You can't divorce the word Christian from disciple and follower. They're, they're, they're one and the same. In Luke 9, verse 23 and 24, Jesus himself breaks down what it means to follow him. It says right there in verse 23, it says, He, Jesus, said to, to all, to everyone there, he said, if anyone would come after me, which is a way of saying, look, if anyone wants in on this kingdom that I'm telling you about, if anyone wants in in this kingdom that I'm showing you through these, these displays, uh, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone wants in on that, then, then do what? Let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. Let him put his old self behind him, deny himself, and then take up his cross daily and follow me. Follow Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. He says, verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, in other words, his old life, for my sake, will save it, save his true life. Discipleship is this constant, ongoing, everyday dying to your old self and resting in Christ. In his commentary on the book of Romans, the great reformer Martin Luther points out that Salvation comes by resting in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It comes in resting in the declarations that Jesus is Lord and he's now made us dead to our sins. And he says our whole Christian lives are now the posture that we take towards those two declarations that Jesus is Lord and we're dead to our sins. The point uh, is not how we felt or, or what we said or prayed at the moment of our conversion. The point is, what is your ongoing posture right now? So think about it like 
sitting in a chair, right? Which pretty much you're all doing, except for me, right? Like, think about it like sitting in a chair. There was a time when you transferred the weight of your body from, from your legs that you're standing on to the chair that you're sitting on. And yet you decided, yeah, there you go. He said it's true, right? So you decided, you decided to sit down, but the proof of, of that decision, of where your weight now rests, is not in the decision that you once made, but in the posture that you now hold, right? And so in the same way, where your weight now rests is not in the decision that you once made for Jesus, but in the posture you now hold. That doesn't mean that you won't sin. Doesn't mean that you won't or can't backslide. The scripture tells us that we will struggle with indwelling sin is what the Bible calls it, as long as we're on this side of death. You'll fall, you'll fall probably often, and sometimes you'll fall hard. But now the difference is that every time you fall, you rest in Christ. You keep your eyes on him. I think ultimately people are divided into, into two different categories. You're either standing in rebellion against the Lord Jesus or you're seated in submission, resting in his finished work. So a disciple of Jesus is someone who preaches the gospel to himself or herself and follows Jesus in the everyday stuff of life as a true disciple. Now, there's more to it, of course, but it starts with those two. It starts with those two and everything else flows from there. Paul continues. He says in verse three, bless you, verse three, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. See, because following Jesus is not always easy, is it? No, it's not always easy because you're dying to your old self. You're walking in the newness of life, especially when you're young in your faith. It's like, it's just like a, like a toddler, right? Like you're learning how to walk for the, for the first time. You get, your steps are a little janky. Your posture's a little awkward. Following Jesus and now also helping others follow Jesus is not always easy. And so he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And to further that point, Paul gives us now three uh, illustrations of what that looks like. Three illustrations. Um, this is our third principle of discipleship. Um, well, before that, let me read this first, actually, in verse 4. So the three comparisons that he gives us are found in verse 4. It begins in verse 4. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. All right? So part of what it looks like to follow Jesus is, is, is you're like a soldier. And he says no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his, his aim, his purpose, his mission is to please the one who enlisted him. And so this is our third principle of discipleship, that we need to choose what is ultimate over what is immediate. Right? Choose what is ultimate over what is immediate. It helps to think of this with a first century sort of Greco-Roman mindset, right? Because back then, like to be a soldier was something that you saw all the time. Like everyone knew a soldier. Everyone knew what it meant to be a soldier. Like you'd, you'd see them going on their campaigns. Uh, these are guys that didn't get furloughed. Sometimes they go on for years on the same campaign. 
And you couldn't do the thing that you wanted to do if you were a soldier because you were always so focused on your aim and mission. You're always so focused on your orders. It was actually against the law of the land to be a soldier and entangle yourself in what's called civilian affairs. Now, just to be clear, just to be clear, what Paul's not saying is he's not saying like, hey, you can't have friends or you can't have like a normal job outside of ministry. He's not saying you can't shop for groceries or you can't get to know your neighbors. No, the point of the metaphor is to say, hey, look, now now you live for the glory of God. And so because of that, don't entangle yourself in things that are going to pull you away from that ultimate goal. And so with your friends and your job and your, your, your shopping for basic needs and getting to know your neighbors, you start to now do all those for the glory of God. Don't live for the immediate. Live for the ultimate. You have to keep in mind and remember what it is that you're living for. Better yet, who you're living for. So what's of eternal value? Now, this, this whole immediate versus ultimate thing, like few, few people actually consider what is of ultimate value, what is most important. Most people, like, don't have any sort of focus or aim in their life. And so they get caught up in whatever it is that they want in the moment, in the immediate moment. Like, everyone wants to be healthy, right? But everyone also loves dessert, Right? Like there's this constant attention between what it is that we value and what it is that we want right now. As Stephen Covey, the old leadership expert, has this exercise he recommends everybody do. He says, it would be good to ask yourself, what is it that you would want people to say about you when you pass, when you die? Like, what is it that you'd want people to, to say about you? Now, you might think that that's like a, a sad and depressing exercise to, to think about, to think about how you would be remembered. But what's more depressing is getting to the end of your life and finding out that you didn't live for what's of real value. You didn't live for what's of ultimate value. And look, it's also not enough to have anti-goals in life. And what I mean by that is, is, is like you're, when you, your primary goals in life are, are things like, you know what I'm going to do is my goal is I'm not going to be poor. Or I'm not going to be like my parents. Or I'm not going to be a loser. Like that's a reaction to the past. That's a reaction to something you've already seen, something you've already experienced. What we need is a positive, biblically informed vision for the future, for where God has us headed. Like, hey, well, what kind of person is God calling you to be? What kind of husband or wife is he growing you to be? What kind of father or mother is he now growing you to be? What kind of servant in the church? What kind of neighbor on your street? 
In order to live well to the glory of God, you can't be reactionary to whatever's right in front of you. You have to be proactive. You have to be thoughtful, have foresight, keep your eyes on what's most important, which our verse says is pleasing God and keeping your aim there. Paul continues in verse five, and he says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. You know what he's talking about? Like, athletes back then, uh, much like athletes today, I mean, they'd have to discipline themselves according to these long sets of guidelines. And so he's talking here about having self-control. Just to be clear, he's not talking about like rules-based Christianity, but what he is talking about is having a sense of self-control and discipline. Like you can't you can't follow Jesus with some form of discipline. And that's the next principle of discipleship is to be engaged in what we call the disciplines of grace. The disciplines of grace. There's a, there's a movie uh, called Man on Fire with Denzel Washington. How many of you guys have seen that? Yeah, a few of you? All right. So in the movie, there's a little girl, if you remember, her name's Peta. And she's, she's a swimmer. And, and she keeps practicing and, and, and competing, um, but she can never seem to get better than third place, and she can't seem to figure out why. And then when her, her, her bodyguard starts watching her practice, and he notices that she's the fastest one in the water, but the slowest one off the blocks. And so he, he tells her that. And he asks her, what does that tell you? And then he gives her the answer. He says, you need to get faster off the blocks. You're the fastest one in the water and the slowest one off the blocks, but if you're faster off the blocks, he's like, I think you could win. And so he works with her to learn on how to get faster off the blocks. He does all these different exercises to try and like scare, because what was happening is like when the, when the gunshot would go off, she'd get scared, and that's why she was going off slow. And so he'd do all these things to try and get her to get faster off the blocks and trains for it, and she disciplines herself for it. And then she goes on eventually to win first place. You see, the, the disciple of Jesus is, in some sense, a disciplined disciple of Jesus. I mean, those words, they kind of come from the same root, as you probably guessed. Now, again, I don't want you to misunderstand me, because we are grace people, right? Like, I'm not, <coughs> excuse me, diminishing that. <coughs> I am diminishing my voice, but <coughs> we're not diminishing the gospel of grace, right? Like, how are we saved? By grace alone through faith alone. But that doesn't mean that, oh, thank you. So we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. But that doesn't mean that the Christian life is now one of no effort and no obedience, right? Because it's all grace. No, <coughs> what it does mean is that we're no longer living out of our own self-glory. We're no longer living out of our own power. We're no longer living to try and impress God, to try and earn our way in. Now it's all out of his grace. For the Christian who excels in this or who is faithful in discipleship, this means that we, one of the things we do is we engage in habits or disciplines of grace. This is what the reformers called the means of grace. The means of grace are God's appointed instruments that the Holy Spirit uses to enable believers to receive Christ and to uh, receive the benefits of his grace, to grow in grace. 
God could have made us like spiritually mature at the point of conversion, right? Like you, <laughs> you get saved and then boom, like you're yoked on the gospel, right? Just super fully mature. But instead he's determined to grow us through certain means, certain disciplines. <laughs> and he's assigned things like the word and sacraments and prayer and other spiritual disciplines as the means to grow us in Christ. The reason he does that is because these, these things, they're not godliness in itself, but they place us in the streams and the flows of God's grace. <coughs> so, the Lord commands us <clears throat> in, uh, for example, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. It says, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. <coughs> Sorry, guys. Yeah. This is like my, What? Six, six, six message in like five or three days. So, um, Lord, save my voice. Cool. All right. Um, there we are. Um, the disciple of Jesus, he, he engages in these habits, in these disciplines of grace. And I think that Paul's last metaphor here is especially hopeful for us. Verse 6 says it is a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Now, that's a strange way to land, right? Like you got all these uh, like fantastic metaphors with the soldier and athlete, sensational metaphors. But he lands with the farmer, right? And to me, this is, this is my favorite because this is another illustration of a hardworking occupation, but it, but it also might be the hardest one of all for 21st century people to really grasp. Because what does a farmer do? Farmer tills the ground. He, wor he, he works the land. He tills the ground. He plants the seed. He waters it. And then, and then he waits. And then he works the ground, tills the ground, waters, plants a seed, waters it, and then he waits, right? And then he works to land. I'm just kidding. You guys get it, right? And so the farmer has to be, has to be content to work and work and then, and then, and then wait. More than any other worker, the farmer learns there's no such thing as quick and fast results. A farmer expects to work hard for long hours over long months in all kinds of weather to, to realize and, and, and produce a harvest. And as disciples, we learn too to follow Jesus, even though it's, it's hard, to plug into community, to worship on the Lord's day, to serve and give, pray, and to wait. 
That's the fifth principle of discipleship. We got to commit to patient plotting over the long haul. Commit to patient plotting over the long haul. It's about monotonous, uh, uh, undistracted, but, but sometimes boring, faithful work. And you don't always see the fruit of your labors immediately. And so you, you, learn to, you learn to trust by faith that you serve a sovereign God and that, and that your work matters. Your labors matter. Your service matters. I think it's trendy, especially for... Um, for young, for young people or for millennials like, like myself to, to talk about, like, you, you, you know, we want to start a revolution, right? But as Kevin DeYoung says, he says, what we need are fewer revolutionaries and a few more plotting visionaries. <laughs> what he means is that the best churches are full of gospel-centered men and women who are committed to a vision of godly obedience and the glory of God, who pursue that daily with relentless and often unnoticed, just plotting consistency. Sometimes we think that like what the world needs is like a, like a Christian Elon Musk, right? Like who's going to lead the world in innovation and move us all into the future and change entire social networks and, you know, shoot for the stars and like actually get us there. But then we, we dream of, like, maybe I could be like that guy, right? Maybe I can be that kind of that Christian. But, but the future of the church doesn't, doesn't rest on our ability. It doesn't rest on your ability to be a Christian revolutionary. You might be, but you're probably not. The future of the church doesn't rest in being a revolutionary, but in being a faithful disciple in the everyday stuff of life where God has sovereignly placed you. That's what the church needs. Church needs line workers and teachers and salesmen and stay-at-home moms and, and engineers and just regular people who have kids, a mortgage, who tie to the church, who maybe serve on a board, like a nonprofit board, support a few missionaries or church planners with disposable income, just, just regular faithfulness. Michael Horton critiques our addiction to the extraordinary and radical. He says, like every other area of life, we've come to believe that growth in Christ as individuals or as churches can and should be programmed to generate predictable outcomes that are unrealistic and not even justified biblically. We want big results sooner rather than later. And we've forgotten that God showers his extraordinary gifts through ordinary means. He loves us through ordinary fellow image bearers and sends us out into the world to love and serve others in ordinary callings. Until we're content, until you're content, then in being just one of the, like the, the billions of nameless, faceless church members and not some like famous revolutionary or influencer, then we're not ready to lead others in discipleship. But daily discipleship is not a new revolution each morning. It's a, it's a long, settled obedience in the same direction. Now, this last principle of leadership isn't explicitly found in the words of the text, but it's 
sort of implied underneath all throughout. Because if you remember the background here, Paul's writing to a man he served with and labored alongside. And so this last principle of discipleship is that you can never do it by yourself. You can never do it by yourself. You need to surround yourself with men and women who are going to help you be who it is that God's called you to be. Find people who can be there in your corner for you, to encourage you in your strengths and your gifts, but aren't too impressed by you that, that they can be honest with you about your blind spots and weaknesses. Surround yourself with people who don't just, just care about your interests, but also share in your kingdom values. I think the mistake we make a lot of times as, as, as people is we, we surround ourselves with other people who share our interests, but we, we don't have anyone who actually shares our values. If you do that, if you surround yourself with people who, who don't share your values, like maybe they're the kind of people who like they live for the now, they live for what's immediate and not for the ultimate. If you do that, like you won't grow, you won't move forward. Maybe you're trying to live for the ultimate. You're trying to live for eternity, but all you have around you is people living for the here and now. And if that's the case, then you're just gonna feel this constant tension. You'll feel uncomfortable for a little while. You might even notice yourself starting to lose friends, but it's not gonna matter that you're alone for a little while, at least until you find the right brothers and sisters, because the benefit to your family and your church and the people around you down the road is gonna be indescribable. You can't do it by yourself. And so preach the gospel to yourself repeatedly. Follow Jesus in everyday stuff of life. Choose what is ultimate over what's immediate. Engage in the disciplines of grace. Commit to patient plotting and never go at it by yourself. You'll be tempted to give in. You'll be tempted to give up. But man, don't, don't do it. Run to Christ. Run to him. Rest in him. Let him change you. Let him empower you. The person that you look at every day in the mirror depends on it. More importantly, so do the other faces in your life. Paul says in verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. More than anything, he says, remember, Jesus lived for you. He died for you. He rose in victory over evil, sin, and death for you so that you could have a new life, so you could walk in a new life and have a home in heaven. Don't lose sight of that. Lean into that. And by the grace of God, be the man that he, or woman that Jesus is calling and equipping you to be. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.